Hello, uh, Rosla community. I am here today. This is Rachel, by the way, uh, with Emily Bender, who um, I actually uh, know quite well because I went to the University of Washington for my PhD program, and Emily was in the department where I got my degree, although not on my committee uh, because I was. Uh, well, actually, do you want to talk a little bit about your work and your your specialization in NLP? Sure. So. I think at the time that you were at UW, I was probably primarily working on grammar engineering. So mm -hmm. looking at syntax and semantics, cross-linguistically, applications of that to endangered language documentation, and moving into computational semantics. So how do we build semantic representations that can be built up compositionally with grammars? Um, and I think as you were finishing, I was just starting to move into the um, space of looking at the societal impacts of NLP, and that's mm -hmm. where we really connected. Um, I remember being really excited about your work, but it would make sense I wasn't on your committee. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I focused more on um, speech and sociolinguistics and uh, language learning and not really processing, but more more on the learning side of things, human learning. We have Euler. Yeah, so um, that's what you were doing in what, 2017 when I graduated, time continues to move forward. Um, and I think you're probably best known, well, I would say for, for two things in the, in the NLP community. And the first is the Bender rule, um, which uh, folks who watch the YouTube channel, uh, the Rosa YouTube channel uh, know that I get, I just get upset when people <laughs> only talk about English because most people don't speak English. It's a cool language, it's my native language. It has some interesting features, but it's not everybody's, right? Um, so what is the what is the Bender rule and how does it relate to me getting upset about English only? So the Bender rule, I didn't name it, but once people named it, I ran with it. Um, and the Bender rule states that um, you should always name the language you're working on, even when it's just English. Mm -hmm. And what this comes from is so much work in NLP where people talk about, you know, we create a solution for question answering or we're working on, um, you know, a biomedical information extraction or whatever the specific topic is, and they don't say in English. Mm -hmm. And the problem here is that when you have a situation where work on English gets presented as completely general, but work on other languages is language specific, then it becomes really hard to publish the work on other languages. And you have this weird disadvantage, a com completely you know, irrational disadvantage to work that happens to be in other languages that then says it's on the other language and people go, oh, but your solution's not general. Well, your solution for English isn't general either. <laughs> yeah, uh, English. I mentioned it has lots of interesting features. Probably the one that is makes work on English the least extensible. Well, grammatically is that we don't have a lot of, we have a very impoverished morphology. There's not a yeah. lot of sort of like word bits that contribute meaning um, or grammatical meaning, I should say. So a language like German has, you know, very long words that have lots of bits. Inuktitut, very long words that have lots of bits. Uh, mm -hmm. Tagalog, uh, many mm -hmm. languages have this feature and English does not. So um, a lot of English NLP pipelines just like don't, ha don't handle that very much, yeah. if at all. Exactly. We can, we can do lemmatization by just hacking off the last few characters of a word and call it good in English and like that. So it doesn't scale to languages that are doing much more interesting things in the morphology. Um, and just, yeah, like this, this idea that, um, so I've actually been on this soapbox since about 2009. There was a, a workshop at EACL in Athens called um, something about the relationship between linguistics and computational linguistics. And then there was these three V words. It was like virtuous, vicious, or vicarious, I think, were the Vs. And um, my talk was basically, you know, you can't 
claim that something is language independent unless you test that. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, at the time, I felt like there was a whole bunch of NLP stuff that said, look, ma, no linguistics. Basically, if you didn't put in any linguistic knowledge, then therefore it must be completely general across languages when in fact everything was being developed against this one particular language that, you know, it's a perfectly fine language, as you say, it's also my first language, but it's not representative of all languages. And so um, I've been sort of going on about that for a while. And then in, in um, it was in 2019 is where it really exploded because I basically said, okay, I'm going to ask this question at NACL, um, the North American chapter of the ACL. For every talk that doesn't mention the language, I'm just going to say, and what language was this on? And, <laughs> and I would like go to a session with like six papers. And by the second or third one, people would catch on to what I was doing. <laughs> and um, that was where it took off. And the, the best one of those actually was at the, um, the best paper session at the end. Um, so this was, you know, imagine you've got the hotel ballroom because this was in the before times mm -hmm. where conferences worked like that. Um, and there's a thousand plus people all sitting in chairs in the ballroom with the, the, um, temporary walls opened up and someone gave uh, the last paper of the best paper session or at least the last one that I could stick around for because I was heading to the airport mm. and it was something you know it, it won best paper for a reason like it was something some tweak to the neural architecture that was getting impressive improvements on xyz tasks mm. um, and they didn't mention the language mm. so the presenter went over time and the session chair said okay we have time for one quick question I was already standing up towards the back of the room because I needed to leave to go to the airport. So I just walked up to the mic and I said, Emily Bender, University of Washington, what language was this on? And the presenter said, uh, English? But they hadn't like been part of the conversation before, so they didn't know where I was coming from. But mm. the, the entire room laughed and um, I left for the airport. <laughs> huh. um, so yeah, so that's, if people want to read more, I, I wrote up a sort of a history of the Bender rule and some discussion discussion of the ways in which English is not representative mm. and that you can find in the gradient and there's a link from my publications page. Yeah, your, uh, your website's always very helpful as a way to pull together information. Uh, yeah, it's, and I think it's very much like a research specific problem almost because as someone who's a little bit more, um, you know, at the coalface and working with developers who like need to get this shit by the end of Q1, um, obviously they know what language they're working on. And it's very yeah. important that the tool works for their language. Um, and it's interesting. And I think it's become more of a problem almost um, in that these sort of the you know the hot exciting research topics are really focused on english and it's not necessarily at this point uh, i'm talking about language models here i'm talking about really big language models and um the thing about really big language models is they may not need as much sort of grammatical um machinery i guess is one way to put it as much formal grammar representation or they may i don't know that's not my research area um but they do rely on having truly 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 enormous corpora and uh last week we were talking about uh, someone who was building an assistant and had written a paper about it in vietnamese um and they used um, fast text, the Vietnamese language, Vietnamese language fast text embeddings, and they used uh, multilingual BERT, and they tried the, the Vietnamese version, and, and the Vietnamese version of BERT just did not work for, for their data set, and the fast text embeddings were much better. Um, and just also the, the embeddings that they pre-trained just with their training data were also much better than this, this really big model. Um, 
And I think a big part of that is how much computerized data do you have for a specific language? And that is not evenly distributed. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think that, you know, you say that this is more of a research problem than a, you know, practical applications problem, because people who are building something obviously know what language they're building for. But to the extent that the research developments inform what's happening in industry, mm-hmm. when everybody's working primarily on English, and furthermore, on English with methodologies that you say just don't scale across languages, because you can't get a terabyte of data, even in Vietnamese, right? And, you know, Vietnamese is not not anywhere near the bottom of the list in terms of language resources. Right? Yeah, and it's the biggest um, uh, language in its family as well. Like, it's not like you can sort of like scooch in some some German or some like French language resources. Right, right. And pull stuff over. So so when, when the research community is all focused on these things that aren't going to scale to, you know, other languages, and you don't have to go to languages with really small speaker communities, um, which are also very important and it's sort of especially important when you're talking about the value of maintaining a language and reclaiming a language to community cohesiveness and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, um, but you don't have, even have to go there to see this problem. Like you, you look at languages that have millions of speakers, but they aren't the ones that have lots of resources and they might have, you know, millions of speakers who are doing a lot of, of social media and texting and stuff like that. Um, but you don't have, um, well-developed news corpora, you don't have something like the common crawl in that language. And you also might not have the same degree of standardization of the writing system, mm. um, which is yeah. so one of the ways in which English is weird is that we've actually had a pretty standardized writing system for a good long time. Mm. And that is quite convenient for natural language technology and quite unrepresentative. Um, so yeah, I think that these, you know, there's, there's certainly scientific interest in the large language models, but they, um, one of the downsides to them is they sort of suck attention away from techniques that are going to be more scalable across languages. And I'm going to, I'm going to do the thing that good interviewers do and say something I kind of don't disagree. I don't agree with, but I think that a lot of people would, would sort of like jump in here and be like, okay, yeah, but aren't these really big language models, not really models of language, but models of the world, because they're trained on all of this different text, right? And so they've extracted a deep understanding of what it means to be a dog, for example. Um, and this is like I, I, not something that I agree with, but definitely yeah. a point that I have seen made quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean to say that a large language model is a model of the world? Um, so there's a couple different directions that I want to go with on that. And I think maybe the first thing that I want to say is um, to relay another conference experience. So at ACL 2016 in Berlin, um, there was a workshop, the first workshop on representation learning for NLP. And this was all about, you know, word embeddings and stuff like that and and sort of understanding what they're doing and how do we test them and, and, and things like that. And I'm sort of following along and kind of making a pest on myself on Twitter going, representation of what? Right. What 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 are these word representation representations representing? And the answer was, well, the words. I'm like, well, what about the words, right? Because as a linguist, I come at this with this notion that language is a system of signs, and this goes back to dissociere, right? You have pairings of form and meaning. I should say dissociere is probably only one of the sources of that. Um, you know, Panini probably has something similar, and so on. But but when linguists look at language, we see, okay, they're symbol symbolic systems, and a symbol is a is a pairing of a sign and a signified. And 
when you're doing word embeddings, when the training data is just the form, then all you can represent is distributional facts about the words. Um, and that's not what people are talking about when they talk about word representations. And it's true that um, those distributional facts are sensitive to things that look like lexical semantics as well as things that look like syntax. Um, so, you know, there's those, the, the so-called, you know, word analogy problems. Um, although, um, there's, it, that's a little bit of a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. So, um, Natalie Schluter has a nice paper in, I think, ACL 2018 or NACL 2018 sort of saying, there's, there's a problem with using this as a test. Um, and one of the problems is that, the, like, if you do the, what's the famous thing? So, uh, um, king minus man plus woman equals queen, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's the one that I was thinking of. Um, and then, of course, there was the Bullock Blasi et al. one, which is like, you know, um, man is to computer programmer as woman is to, and it gets completed as homemaker, um, which is awful. And it points up an important problem that I'm going to get to in the second half of this rant. But um, Natalie Schluter's point is that, um, well, actually, though, when you run that test, one of the requirements is you can't return the, if it's A is to B is C is to blank, you can't return B again. Mm. That was actually part of the setup. And so oh, if the answer was going to be computer programmer, it couldn't come out. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit broken as a, as a test, um, which is not to say that these things aren't picking up various kinds of biases. And that's the other really important point. So, mm -hmm. so when we say the language model has modeled the world, well, it has modeled word distributions. And if you poke at it in the right way, you can get things out that looks like, look like facts about the world. Um, and, oh, I don't have the authors of this one, but there's a recent paper actually out of Google showing that you can at these very large language models in a particularly clever way and get it to spit out memorized bits of its training data, including personally identifiable information. Oh, yeah, the one that with uh, phone numbers and emails. Yeah, no, I saw that yeah. as well. Exactly. So, so certainly the language models encode the text they've been trained on and they can spit it out in various ways and they can give you things that are um, coherent seeming and then we as humans go to that and add the meaning. But even that, like even if we say, okay, it's not a representation of the world, it's a representation of language about the world um, and you have to have a human coming in there to get from the language to understanding um, there's still the problem that well, what is that training data right when people talk about the world it is not a dispassionate sort of appropriately distributed set of statements of true facts but it is things that people chose to say based on their own viewpoints and opinions and that's what the language models are picking up and that's where you get um, all of the you know the initial uh, investigation into it was looking first at like gender bias in language models for English, but it goes you know, on and on and on and we've seen lots of it. And so uh, it's really worth thinking about, okay, if I'm going to deploy this as part of my technology in any way, what do I need to worry about in terms of, you know, given that it's not really the world that's represented, it's things that people have said about the world. And I know that there's a lot of garbage out there and the bigger the data collection, the more the garbage. Um, how do we um, figure out how to use these safely and appropriately? Um, and you know, that's the that's that's my answer to that. Which <laughs> yeah, I think there's um, two two parts to to that that I think about a lot. And one of them is um, that if you have a large corpus that you have scraped that you haven't hand validated it almost certainly has hate speech in it. And it may have speech speech in it that you don't recognize as hate speech, um, but that is still, you know, encoding, um, you know, a, a 
face representation. I'm it's moving things closer together that don't necessarily need to be very close together. And that's going to have effects downstream. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other is something that uh, Red Schwartz uh, has. uh, She just put out her blog post of her her workshop on common sense. Uh, And one thing that she points out um, that I think I've heard about is the black swan problem as well, is that Mm -hmm. the things that we say about the world are not like if I think about all the objects in my house, right? I don't have a house. If I think about all the objects in my apartment, I don't talk about each of those objects in equal amount, right? There are certain objects that I'm going to talk about more. And some of the most important objects I may never talk about, even though I interact with them quite a bit. So um, for example, I am very likely to talk about a new object in my in my environment, even if it's not an important object, right? Like if I bring in a piece of junk mail and I'm like, oh, hey, check out this junk mail. Do you want it? Um, you know, my husband's like, no, I don't want it. Uh, and then I throw it away. We've talked about, about this very transient object that is not important to us. Uh, but if you looked at sort of all of the things that we said in a day, you'd be like, oh, that junk mail, they're talking about it a lot. That must be more important than like, um, the coffee that I've drunk over the course of a day, um, because maybe I don't talk about the coffee, but it's very important to me personally. Um, so there's there's both like the, the problem of, you know, you are going to be picking up um, and potentially amplifying um, things that I think most people would agree are bad, uh, but also mm-hmm. it's not going to be uh, a good representation of the world just because it's been filtered around between, you know, one human and then what one human is going to write down and communicate to another human. And we get all sorts of sensory information that we just, you know, we don't record. That's not important. Yeah. So one of the things I think is really helpful in, in thinking about how to, how to have computers um, helpfully communicating with people or using human language in a way that is a bit like human communication is to think about what it is that we're doing when we're communicating with language. And it is absolutely not the case that we are taking every single relevant bit of information and then encoding it all very precisely in a series of words. And then our interlocutor unpacks those words and gets back exactly that communication, right? There's people who look into this. So um, Herb Clark has a wonderful book called Using Language, um, which is a really fun read. Um, there's a very strange and wonderful paper by um, Reddy, whose first name I don't remember from 1979, talking about the toolmaker's paradigm. Um, and also the conduit metaphor. So Reddy's basically saying in English, when we talk about language, we have this extended metaphor of language as a conduit where it's hard for me to get my ideas across or it was basically all the stuff that says the meaning is in the text and it's not, right? That basically when we communicate, we are um, doing our best to guess at the communicative intent of the other person based on a whole bunch of common ground Sometimes, like you and I have a lot of actual like shared experiences at UW that increases our common ground. Um, but as humans, we can make you know assumptions about common ground like, oh, water is wet. And if you drop a leaf, it will fall more slowly than if you drop a rock. And you know, even if we don't know the physics behind that, we have that shared experience. And so we would never say it out loud unless you're a linguist doing what I'm doing right now. And then in the in the communicative moment, you basically um, a series of words with this associated syntactic structure with its associated conventional meaning that is therefore a very rich cue to your interlocutor to figure out what it was that you wanted to convey. And, and that's so what that means is you don't bother saying things that are obvious. Um, and so if a computer is trying to learn common sense from what people say, it's going to get a very strange picture of the world. There's um, 
a dumb example of this. There's a, a Vine rip. Um, Vine is, was a, a platform for very short videos um, yes. where someone says, tossing my keys, and somebody throws them a uh, an office printer. So it's about you know two feet by two feet. And of course, it crashes onto the ground and smashes into a thousand pieces. And uh, the person to whom it was tossed says, I said my keys. Uh, and the other person is like, oh, I thought you said printer. And then the person to whom it was tossed says, why would I say printer? So I think that like, knowledge that you don't toss people printers, right, is why this yeah. person who was tossed at has that sense of like anger and frustration. And that's what makes it a funny joke, just to, yeah. I find it funny. Um, yeah, that's hilarious. But then linguist humor. So do you remember how uh, there was the Star Trek reboot and they've got the, um, the comms guy who's got a, a heavy Russian accent and he's, he's on the Enterprise for the first time? Chekhov, right? Yes, Chekhov. Yeah. And so in the in the Star Trek reboot, he can't get the computer to understand him. Mm -hmm. And I saw this in a movie theater again before times, well before times. And um, that scene hit, and I was just laughing and laughing. And nobody else in the theater thought anything funny had just <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, but but yeah, so so yeah, exactly. Your point with this the same with the printer is. Not only is that a completely implausible mishearing, mm -hmm. right? What is what is the word for printer that sounds like keys? We don't we don't have one. And in fact, you almost expect that to be what the joke is going to be, and then the joke is, but that would be a ridiculous thing to say. And so, yeah. Um, and but it, how would a computer know that, right? And a, a computer might know that because it's a low frequency thing to say. Um, but then as you're pointing out, there's also things that we don't say that are perfectly sensible. It's just they don't need saying because they're so sensible. And also there's, um, I mean, something that I think uh, is pretty common, particularly in language generation, is that you try to target saying things that are a little bit less low frequency. So you don't get that like um, that thing where you get stuck in repetition or um, that you're just repeating things that you saw on the training data. So um, very much a the temperature dial that someone might tweak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's there's things that are left unsaid that are part of the biases that we don't want to pick up. So, mm -hmm. you know, Robin Spears example about um, Yelp reviews at Mexican restaurants. This is <sighs> I um, remember reading about from... it, but I remember zero yeah. details. All right. <laughs> so 2017 ish and it's published as a blog post. And I, I um, sort of said, she publishes as a, as a paper. She's like, oh, who would take it? I'm like, this is excellent. But um, what she did was um, she took some off-the-shelf word embeddings, you know, circa 2017, and used them as a component in a sentiment analysis system. Yeah. Um, and uh, found, so, you know, you got um, Yelp reviews, you got the text of the restaurant review, and the task is to predict the stars. Mm -hmm. So she builds this system and um, finds that the resulting system is underpredicting the stars for Mexican restaurants in particular. Mm. So, well, what's this about? Like, and it turns out, going back to the source data for those word embeddings, included a bunch of general web garbage um, in English, which includes all of our terrible discourse about immigration, you know, from and through Mexico. And because of all the terrible things that people say, not just on like sort of hate speech concentrated websites, but you know, our politicians in the media, right? You can't mm. say. Okay, well, clearly this won't happen if I restrict my attention to respectable publications like the New York Times, because they're also going to be, you know, publishing mm -hmm. this stuff as quotes at least. And so it came to this point that basically what you're talking before about how words end up in space closer to other words where they shouldn't. And the word Mexican in that discourse is too close in space to things like illegal and crime and stuff like that, 
not because of anything actually about um, well, it's kind of something about the world. Yeah, not about the underlying population, but it's about the world in the sense it's about the bias that's in the world. It's about mm-hmm. the people who are saying those things. Um, and sort of the net result is the sentiment analysis system picked up that this word Mexican was a negative sentiment word. And so therefore, if you called a restaurant a Mexican restaurant, you clearly were not going to give it a good review, which was wrong. So I think it was a really nice demonstration of how you don't have to um, even directly say something like, you know, if these people aren't on record saying, I hate Mexican people. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more subtle than that. It's about where the words show up together um, and and it can have these consequences. And if you don't know what's in the training data, then how do you know what kinds of things your system's going to have picked up? And as you were saying before, um, nobody has the ability to understand everything that's hate speech or you know, even not hate speech, but just like denigration, right? Mm-hmm. Because we aren't, sensitive to stuff that is outside of our experience. Um, and so you can't, like, even if you were to go through and, and read every piece of text, you couldn't be sure not to have, um, I've got too many negatives in there. You couldn't be <laughs> sure to have caught everything. <laughs> um, so I was slightly distracted by Euler, who's checking out the computer. There she is. <laughs> yeah. And then, I don't know, on the... On the one hand, I think it's very good to be aware of the potential problems. But on the other hand, um, I mean, certainly for for building a commercial system, like especially for you know a language where you have maybe some some web corpora, but maybe not uh, a resource like something like WordNet, um, which I, I think so. WordNet is a um, a structured knowledge representation of, of things. Although I think people are using ConceptNet more these days. Anyway, not, again, not my research area. Um, and I, I think there's some idea that these things should be universal to some degree, but um, I think that that is probably not the case um, for a number of reasons. But anyway, um, so if you're working in a language that doesn't have these, you know, large structure corpora and you don't have time or money to build them, um, especially given you know, how difficult it is to, to get data sets projects funded in general, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, Vector semantics and representational semantics and, you know, language modeling can really help you get a warm start. And I think the mm-hmm. question for me as a practitioner is like, okay, there, it's not going away, right? We're not going to stop using language models. We're not going to stop using, I mean, language models, I should say, also did not suddenly appear in 2017. They've, they've been uh, part of the yeah. NLP landscape pretty much since its inception. Um, the methods have changed. Uh, so there's these tools. We know that... They have the potential to um, it, a cause harm and b just like not do what we want them to do in terms of you know creating successful products that are useful for people and make their lives better. Which I mean, you know, that's why I got into NLP because I wanted to to help build things that really genuinely helped people. So what do we do, right? Um, do we all hand build grammars for everything all the time? I think that's probably not a very sustainable solution. No, I mean, I, I certainly, I, there's a time and a place for hand-building grammars, and it's still a research area for me, but it is not a general purpose solution to all tasks. Um, but I think that the people who are working on developing a particular solution for a particular use case mm-hmm. have a superpower, which is that they've got a concrete use case in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the ways in which linguistic knowledge can really inform NLP is in doing error analysis and evaluation. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about okay, what are the cases I expect this to work in? Let me build out my test suite to make sure that it works in those cases. Um, and then what are the failure modes? 
Mm. So when it doesn't work, what are the, what are, how does it, what does it, how does it behave, right? Does it pretend as if it's still working and kind of go off the rails? Does it have a way to say, I didn't understand? Um, is there a way to signal the uncertainty to the user? Um, I think that for, you know, uh, conversational agents in particular, it's really important that the user know that they're speaking with an artificial agent. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, and then setting expectations appropriately. So what, what can you expect this artificial agent to do? Mm -hmm. um, and then what are its range of outputs and like spending some time with the sort of, um, you know, dystopian black mirror ideas of like, okay, what is, what's the worst possible thing mm. that, that given this set of responses that I'm prepared to give, what's the worst possible uh, question that they could be answering in terms of it looking like a bad combination, mm. sort of exploring that space and figuring out how to put some fail safes around it, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and this stuff is really hard to do at the very general level, right? If we're yeah. talking about, you know, what can go wrong with a language model was, okay, well, what's the use case? Where is it being used? And we can do spend some time talking about, um, you know, imagining particular use cases, but you're never going to be able to be thorough about that. And you can't be 100% even in one particular use case, but you can get a lot further. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree that sort of, especially at the design stage, like, really anticipating where things are going to have the potential to go off rails, have the potential to be harmful. Um, and our, uh, some of the things that we've, we've done at Raza to help with this, um, by the way, if you've, if you've ever uh, initialized a Raza bot, we have a sense, uh, we have a set of uh, bot principles in the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the repo you fork um, that talks about sort of our suggestions um, and not deceiving people is a really big one. Um, so our sort of, approach to it has been uh, that you as the some person who is designing or working with the designers and, and figuring out what your system can do. Because we really do do task-driven uh, dialogue agents. We don't do, I mean, you could use Raza to build an open-ended um, uh, chit-chat bot, but that's not really our, our core use case. Because um, we, we, I mean, we're, we're building a, a platform for everybody, but uh, we do need to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> to people who are building products and those products do have to work and usually those are like um you know customer support agents or, or FAQ bots or um helping people get solve problems and do things um so a couple of things that we've really um provided because we do use transformers we do use language models we do use pre-trained uh um uh, feature representations of, of various words um a rules so having a way to have a rule in your system um, and my uh, my go-to example is if you have like a fun bartender bot that's helping to sell alcohol, um, you would want to make sure that the person that you're talking to is in the United States over 21. Otherwise, you end the conversation, right? It always needs to happen that way. You cannot sell alcohol to minors or market. Excuse me. Gesundheit. Welcome spring. <laughs> right? I know. I'm, I am excited for it. Um, and then the... Other thing that we're doing instead of rules is really like I personally wouldn't recommend generating language output. Um, and I know that there have been um, situations where people have done that. A couple of ones that have gone really off the rails, um, you know, Tay, uh, which is a chatbot put out by Microsoft where um, it was very much end to end. People interacted with the assistant, the assistant like uh, added those turns <laughs> to the training data and retrained uh, and ended up saying like really horrible racist stuff pretty quickly. Um, and actually in 24 just, hours. Yeah. They, they took it down within 24 hours. <laughs> uh, 
And then Luda, I think, is the one that happened like a couple weeks ago in January. Mm -hmm. was out of a, mm -hmm. a South Korean firm who was doing yeah. basically the same thing. So I would just never recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and instead using yieldy template systems. Go ahead. Yes, but even when you've got canned responses, mm. there's an open-endedness which has to do with the fact that humans interpret language in context. Mm -hmm. And so one of the same statement can end up meaning very different things depending on what the question was that was asked. Yeah. Um, and I have a couple of examples that come with come from uh, the Google search snippets. Mm. Um, so one was almost a year ago, early in the pandemic, um, an older person who I care about was needing to decide if they needed to go into the hospital or not. And I was like, oh, and they like woke me up to ask this question. So I was, you know, not operating on all cylinders, but it's like, okay, but I, okay, there's advice nurses. So let me search up 24 hour advice nurse. And what comes up basically displayed a phone number saying, um, you can call an advice nurse at this number 24 hours a day. And the text above that had something about the University of Washington, which I recognize as you know, a hospital in our area. Mm -hmm. um, and also the word or the, the acronym UMP, which stands for Uniform Medical Plan, which is the health insurance mm. that um, employees in the University of Washington are a part of. Anyway, in my sleepy state, and I, I consider myself a very information savvy person, but I was not able to put together the fact that there was a name of a health insurance plan there with the you know, information that, oh yeah, the way our health system works in the US you don't just have open access to things and something mm. like an advice nurse is going to be health plan specific. So yeah. that answer was very much unhelpful in the moment because the question that I was coming in with contextualized it in a way that wasn't helpful. Yeah. Um, so that's one example. And then the other example was just a couple of weeks ago, someone discovered that if on Google you search, when did people come to America? Oh, did you see yikes. this one? Yeah, I saw that. It mm. gave this snippet response box from um, this actually Library of Congress American History site, which itself is quite problematic because it starts American history in 1492. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. But basically, it answers that question with something about um, the Jamestown settlers. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's when people came to America. But if you, in that same moment, ask, when did humans come to America? You get this answer about, you know, 33,000 years ago. Um, and uh, you know, nowhere do you get the answer of um, the indigenous peoples of this continent have been here since time immemorial, mm. which is, you know, another take on that question. Um, but it's, I mean, there, uh, I mean, the, the snippet people, no, I think the Jamestown snippet didn't say that people first came to America. It was talking about some specific people who came at that time for specific reasons, mm. but because it was in the context of this question, when did people first come to America, that question answer pair becomes incredibly problematic. And so I would encourage people, even when they're working with, you know, good old templates, which I think are a good safe way to go, to spend some time thinking about, okay, given this template, what kind of question could make this answer look really, really cringy bad? Mm. Like, what's the, um, and then figure out how to design for um, either somebody coming in not really knowing what the capabilities of the chatbot are and asking a question that might give that kind of response or somebody coming in trying to make your company look bad mm. by giving that question answer pair. Um, so even, even templates aren't safe is the take home message here because Definitely. language is interpreted in context. Yeah. 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 And I think the, the, so the things I've talked about so far that we're, we really think about a lot are more on the sort of the design side, but 
um, once something goes out to users, our our philosophy that we we recommend you adopt is um, to as people use your assistant, look at the conversations. I mean, obviously inform them that you're going to be doing this and that they've uh, accepted mm -hmm. the privacy policy. But look at the conversations, annotate what's gone wrong because usually in a conversational setting, you can tell within a couple turns, you know, how someone's doing, how they're enjoying <laughs> their experience. Um, <laughs> and fixing mistakes and then retraining and, and redeploying so that your model is um, continuously being exposed to and correcting for places where it is not uh, meeting users needs and obviously perhaps this isn't obvious i recommend starting with like you know people in your team just really uh, yeah. you know trying conversations saying things a little bit off the wall uh, oftentimes just like in raza we'll we'll send each other links and be like hey Say some dumb stuff to my chatbot, please. Yeah. I want to make sure it, you know, can handle it well, and we can, uh, we can get it to the point where it's ready to, uh, to go out to some folks. Yeah, but you can't. And this is, I know that this feels like the promise of the future, but if you're working with language data, you do have to look at it. You're never going to be able to get out of looking at and oh, annotating yeah. language data. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And this this comes back to that look, my no linguistics thing. Like, mm. I think a lot of the. Um, where the value is placed in machine learning is getting the machine to do the learning so the person doesn't have to. And this is, you know, me as a linguist in NLP, my sort of constant position has been, you can't tell if it's working if you don't understand the task that you're asking it to do. Yeah. And so, yes, there's value in getting a machine that can be trained because there are cases where you want something that's continually updated or you know, is dealing with larger data sets than a person can do by hand, but that doesn't mean that the person doesn't look at any data. Um, and if you've got something that's continually updating, then you definitely need to be continually testing it or you're quickly in Tayland. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know, particularly when you're working on, on commercial products, I think it pays to be uh, a little bit conservative, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what you what you serve to users, and really really think about it. And um, I don't know, I'm I'm sappy. I think that you know engineers are are the safeguards of users, and that you know our job is really to help make people's better lives better, and we should prioritize that in our work. Yeah, Again, exactly. I mean, just like we we appreciate civil engineers who you know design building codes and make sure the bridges don't fall down and stuff like that. It's that engineering ethos of building structures that are safe and have fail safes are, you know, that that I think applies just as much in language engineering. I uh, I don't know. My my sort of personal stance on stuff is that I don't like the the ethos of moving fast and breaking things because usually it is not the people who are breaking whose things are being broken, uh, and it just don't sit right with me. Exactly. And, and, you know, we talk about disrupting things like, well, what are, what are you disrupting and to whose advantage? Right. So are you disrupting systems of oppression? Then like keep going, but also what are you, what, anytime you're disrupting a system, what are you putting in its place? Mm. Right? Are you putting a power vacuum that is going to be a free for all? Or are you putting in something that is sort of constructively put together around justice and care? Um, then great. Right. And I think, you know, as we look to um, like civil engineering as a metaphor, right? You think about civil engineering, civil engineers, and now I'm way outside my area of expertise, but <laughs> like they know things about materials and how they work and the kinds of um, dangers and things the materials are going to be exposed to, right? So you've got um, 
the you know extreme temperatures you've got earthquakes you've got wind mm-hmm. right so what's the um what what are the conditions that we're designing for and i think similarly when you're talking about language technology you need to know something about you know the the machine learning models or the you know rule based models that you've built but you mm-hmm. also need to know something about the language that it's working with and then about the way people behave like what are what are the conditions under which this thing has to be robust and successful and you know safe and and safe there is safe for the users who are coming up to experience it and also safe for the reputation of the company that it's representing right mm-hmm. yeah it's uh i don't know i feel like no one wins when bad products happen um, yeah. and it's just yeah that doesn't feel great to work on them doesn't feel great to use them yeah yeah and one of the interesting spaces in here is thinking about accountability for speech acts Mm -hmm. So if I say something, right, I have accountability for what I've said. Um, And if I've said something that um, insults somebody, then I have a responsibility to, you know, apologize and try to make things right and take responsibility for what I said. Um, When a chatbot, well, okay, so that's me speaking as an individual, right? If I'm Mm -hmm. speaking as a representative of an organization, then um, the organization has some accountability for what I'm saying, and I have accountability to the organization. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about an artificial agent, and the people designing the artificial agent and and the organization that sponsors the artificial agent there's interesting questions about accountability and how we understand sort of who's doing the speaking and on whose behalf and what that means about how we interpret the words yeah definitely and i first i'm going to say i'm not a lawyer talk to a lawyer but um (laughs) in the united states like we have you know, pretty liberal um, laws about what you can say about folks. Um, in places like England, I know libel laws are much stricter. So if you're, you know, your assistant that's just generating languages does a libel, whose fault is that? Um, and I think it was, there was a case out of a court, I want to say in Indonesia recently, that was like, it's the engineers, which obviously not going to apply to every legal system. But right. yeah, I think that's right. a question that will be answered pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I would like to see it answered maybe in terms of like, if you've got a, if you've got a thing, an artificial agent deployed on behalf of a company, then I think the company has some responsibility for testing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I think, I think that it's the, probably the corporate entity and then the corporate entity is going to say, okay, well, we've hired engineers to work on this. And so it is their responsibility of their job to do this testing and sort of build those things in. Um, and that's not weird, right? Like if you talk about, um, you know, uh, consumer safety with products, right? If someone, um, a pharmaceutical company is making pills and they, um, their expiration date is way off, mm-hmm. right? And they are actually ineffective by the time the person's taking them, even though the date says there's a year left or whatever. There's accountability and responsibility there. And, you know, again, same thing. If we're making products, even if people are using them for free, there's still got to be some accountability for them. Yeah. Ah. And I guess on the, on the flip side of that, I don't know, I always like to talk about why, why I think conversational AI is good, because I get a lot of questions. A lot of people ask me the question that is some variant on why do you work on chatbots, they're bad, um, or I don't like using them. Um, and I think that it really comes back to sort of why I'm a linguist, and that I think language is great, and I think it's a great way to give and get information, and it's a way that almost all humans already have access to in some capacity or another. Um, so being able to build systems that you don't have to learn how to use a mouse to use, that you don't have to learn how to navigate a web browser to use. Um, 
I actually don't know if you know this. Um, in in graduate school, I was uh, an adult literacy tutor with with literacy stores. They used to be in Fremont. They're off in Lakewood now. Anyway, um, and one of the the classes they taught was like basic computer skills. Um, mm. and what they found was that when they switched from using desktop computers to tablets, um, students had a lot more success because it's much more intuitive and it takes a lot less learning to use your finger on a screen than it does a mouse on a computer, right? That, that's a learned skill. And I think especially if you're quote unquote digital native or certainly working in computers, yeah. uh, that might be something that, that you forget. Um, right. So I really, you know, I really believe in the power of language to and building systems around language to make you know people's lives better and to help them do things much more quickly um my good experiences with chatbots have all been i've been in a very complex system i need to do something i don't know how to do it but um i can ask a conversational assistant it'll figure out my sort of like natural language request uh in a way that like maybe me searching for a key term wouldn't in mm -hmm. a given system um, I am being intentionally vague because I can't talk about many details, but, um, and I did the thing that I needed to do in like a minute instead of 30 minutes of searching or having to email somebody back and forth. Um, and that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really depends on the use case. I think your point mm -hmm. is that you're bringing up the very important point that the use case depends a lot on the user. So yes. for me, there's times where I encounter conversational agents and I'm like, no, just show me the query interface for the database. Like if, if I'm trying to book a flight, which may again happen someday. <laughs> um, you know, there's a whole bunch of parameters. Like I want, okay, um, you know, here's my source and destination airports mm -hmm. source. But how do that we talk about flights? Uh, yeah, isn't it departure? Um, that sounds right. Departure. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Airplanes. It's a thing that used to exist and will exist again and they exist, but it's not in my experience these days. But anyway, so there's the airport I'm flying from, the airport I'm flying to, there's the airlines that I like, there's the time of day that I want to go, there's, you know, all these, that's how many places I'm willing to stop, how long am I willing, right? A whole bunch of parameters. I don't want to have a big long back and forth with the computer when I know there's a screen where I can like tweak all those things. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, so that's the kind of thing where, but, but even with people, like, way back in the four times when you got plane tickets by talking to a travel agent. The travel agent was sitting there with that kind of interface to the computer and I had to use language to talk to them like, just turn your computer monitor around so I can look and see the thing. But there are other cases where it's not that structured mm -hmm. or um, I don't know how to access the structure. And so being able to ask a question, especially if it's something that can do a multi-turn thing and get clarifications can very much um, spoiler again, um, take advantage of what we do with language. But I think it needs to be, again, really clear to the user what the limitations on the system are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if I ask a question like, um, what's the number for an advice nurse? And it gives me a number that is specific to a particular, you know, hospital system and health insurance, that the fact that I even needed to worry about that was off my radar in that moment. And so mm -hmm. making that visible. Um, and I think that what needs to be made apparent to a user probably also varies with the user and their yeah. experience of computers. And, you know, somebody who's very computer literate and knows that they are dumb little literal machines um, is likely to be more skeptical of information and contextualize it in a different way than somebody who comes upon the computer and says, well, this thing is really high tech and futuristic and flashy. And so it must be telling me truth. Mm. Um, and you know, figuring out 
and you know doing real user studies and talking to people really representative of the population that's going to encounter your product starting with the people who are most vulnerable so that it's a system that works for them um i think is really 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 important <laughs> and hard to do because you know when you're talking about um who's in the room designing these things we are not going to include people whose experience with computers is very limited just like by definition right the computer engineers don't have that property um, i wonder if there were any term that someone could search to learn more about this design approach <laughs> yes <laughs> i was talking about something that, I, that is, there's a body <laughs> of scholarship um, so value sensitive design um is is where i'm speaking from and that is the work of um so i think the leading figure there is by friedman um but also several of her colleagues going back 25 or more years um and lots and lots of really interesting ideas about how to identify stakeholders so the people who are going to interact with the technology but also people who are going to be affected by other people interacting with the technology and then work with them to understand what that technology would mean for them and their value systems around it and how to support those values in the design of the technology so i highly recommend value sensitive design um there's really fun things too so there's something called envisioning cards which is this deck of cards you were probably at a treehouse meeting where i broke them out um <laughs> that sounds right yeah um and it's got a whole bunch of questions to like as you're designing your project to think okay well what would happen if you know this gets used by the majority of the population or what would happen if this is still in use 20 years from now or what would happen um you know consider the possible effects on the elderly or very so it's just like very specific questions that help you think about these issues mm. um and i think that's tremendously valuable because just having the prompt really really helps so you don't have to each time sit down and think okay who are all the people i need to be thinking of because people have thought that through yeah so good uh good thing to look up if you're in this space uh so we've been chatting for a bit uh but before we wrap up i want to give you a chance to plug anything you have something that you think would be useful for the browser community people working in conversational ai or um in nlp and industry generally uh what would be useful things to have um maybe your books <laughs> Oh yes, the books. Thank you. I'm like, hmm, I should recommend there's a book. Okay, so um I um have written so singly after the first one and then co-authored the second one a, a pair of books basically presenting in bite-sized chunks useful things about how language works to help people who are working on language technology who have not had the chance to take a linguistics degree or you know even a linguistics class sort of get a sense of how language works. Um first one they're both called linguistic fundamentals for natural language processing um the first one is on morphology and syntax and the second one is on semantics and pragmatics and they're available through Morgan Claypool um as ebooks or physical books um and um hopefully they are useful they are definitely um meant to be sort of small digestible chunks um they're each designed around 100 things that's useful to know and in fact the title of the um tutorial that was the predecessor of the first book was um 100 things you always wanted to know about linguistics but were afraid to ask subtitle for fear of being told 1000 more <laughs> but the series editor told me that I couldn't use that as the title of the book um for two reasons one is he thought nobody would get the helpful reference i thought it was funny even without it um but also uh he made the point that that first one was actually specifically looking at morphology and syntax mm -hmm. so how words are built up and how sentences are built up and there's more to linguistics than that And then the second one looks at semantics and pragmatics. So how do we get 
the meaning of a sentence out of the meaning of its parts? And then how do we get the uh, impact or semantic import of a sentence based on how it's used? Um, and that's still not everything. There should also be a book like this on phonetics and phonology. Um, but I keep hoping I can find somebody to write because it's too far away from my area of expertise. Don't give me that um, look. Yeah, it'd be great. I'd be happy to advise you. Um, and you know, it occurs to me that there really ought to be one on language variation and other concepts from yep, sociolinguistics. Um, so, so certainly it's not everything about linguistics, but it's two relatively slim sort of digestibly, I hope, volumes, um, but just digestibly written volumes um, on linguistics that I encourage anyone who's curious to go check out. Uh, and I, I, obviously we're both linguists or have linguistic training. Um, we care a lot about language. Uh, I don't think either of us would say you need a linguistics degree to build language products, but the more you know about language and the way that language works, and the more you sort of examine just the assumptions that you have as a language user, I think the easier it will be for you to build great language technology. Yes, exactly. Because when we use language, we do it just so intuitively, we don't notice that we're using it. Mm. And it's that what linguistics does is it basically shines a spotlight right on the language to see how it's working. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to build something that works with language, looking at what's in that spotlight can be really helpful. And also, you don't have to start from scratch, right? We've been, yeah. linguists have been doing this for many thousand years. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can build on that. You do not have to, you know, figure out brick making to, to build a house. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. And then if people want to, um, you know, watch me rant on Twitter, they can find me at, at Emily M. Bender. I have a lot to say about um, linguistics in language technology and also the societal impact of NLP. Um, and um, hopefully that is worthwhile to the world. <laughs> I, I always enjoy your, uh, yeah. your Twitter thoughts. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Emily. Thank you to all our listeners and uh, stay tuned for a shout out to our newest contributors. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Raza Chats. As always, we want to end with a big shout out to all of our new Raza contributors. So for code contributions, uh, Liang De W, thank you so much. And for support contributions, Yatharth Garg, Rai Pinjani, Debmalia Biswas, Elena Rikiradeli, and Nicholas Malamas. Thank you all very much for uh, your support of the Raza community. We're happy to have you. And if I said your name wrong, again, please contact me, Rachel, and I will correct it uh, on the next recording. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Emily and I had, and we'll see you in two weeks in the next one. Bye.